This is Jess and Mason recovering from COVID with a Mostly Green Life, the podcast that's making sustainability and our connection to the environment more fun and approachable for the eco-curious. Today, we're sitting down with Marissa Epstein, partner at Springdale Ventures, to talk about her time working for Michelle Obama, nutrition research, and trends that she's excited about. We all know we need to eat healthy, you know, fruits and veggies. So why is it so hard sometimes? Marissa helps break it down for us. Keep listening to learn more. Today, we are talking with Marissa Epstein. Marissa and I met kind of randomly, right? as at a birthday party. I think I was already coming from a happy hour. So I was approaching my obnoxious level of alcohol at the point. She sat through almost an entire dinner with me, and I was completely fascinated by her and her background. Quite the scholar with a double major, including nutritional science. She's got an MBA, a whole bunch of other credentials, mostly in academia, right up until this year where she entered the food venture world as a general partner at Springdale Ventures. Now, first question, though, the most interesting part of your background that I thought is working with Michelle Obama in 2012 to 2013. You went from being a registered pediatric dietitian at Seton Hospital here in Austin to working with the First Lady. Talk to us about how that felt going from small town Texas girl to landing a job at the White House. It was very much that. I am a small town Texas girl and going to the White House was extraordinary. I think anyone who gets the opportunity to work in public service should test it out, get a better understanding of how the world works, how America's political system works. Uh, was really fascinating. I was in that role not because of a political affiliation, but because I was a pediatric dietitian and the first lady decided that she wanted to launch a campaign to improve children's health and wellness. So the idea that at such a young age, I could have such an impact in the area that I was so passionate about really just felt it was extraordinary on a day-to-day basis. Pretty special. And then um, really proud of what we were all able to achieve. You know, we were a very small but mighty team, very startup-y in the sense of the word. Uh, you'll appreciate, Mason. And rolled up our sleeves and did everything we could. We were just kind of counting down the hours, basically. You know, the first term, you've got yeah. four years, right? right? And then it just starts to cut down from there. And so we were racing against the clock to do as much as we could to help shape the next generation of kids' health. It seems like an incredible opportunity. And we also imagine that you had to work very long hours, 80 plus hours a week with nonstop action. Was that the case at all? Definitely. I had, uh, this is back in the day of Blackberries. So uh, really roll back the clock. I had multiple Blackberries. I slept with one under my pillow. You know, you're just on call. And like I said, with a small team, we all were working around the clock to get things done. I wasn't one who liked to be in the limelight. I liked to do the work behind the scenes, but that usually meant lots of writing, lots of number crunching, lots of strategy, lots of planning. The trenches work to make sure that the public facing work that we were launching and announcing and that she was she was really leading was the best possible product that it could be. So how many people did you have to beat out for that job? Was there an apprentice style <laughs> workshop? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I get asked this question a lot. The question <laughs> sure. being like, how did you get it? Right. Yeah. And no, there was no reality TV show behind the scenes. <laughs> 
you know, what I learned is that, the, you know, when an administration enters office, they are trying to staff as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And so they're really drawing from their network and they're drawing from lists of professionals who are who are known for for being experts in their fields. Uh, and I just happened to be at the time, nutrition was a really taboo topic. You know, parents didn't want to talk about nutrition with their kids. No one wanted to talk about the obesity crisis in America. I was doing what I thought would turn into PhD work at the time at nights working in a, a lab here at UT Austin. Well, during the day I was in the clinic and I thought I was going to end up going, getting a PhD. And I, the, the research that I was working on got me an invitation to a, a conference in DC the year that the, the same month actually that the Obamas came into office. And it was by virtue of, I think, what is that phrase? Luck is when a preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it was just working as hard as I had worked, I think, got me into this moment in time where I was in the right place at the right time. And then kind of luck, the other dynamic of that being the opportunity came to to walk through that door and get invited to to use that expertise in a meaningful way when she and her passion and her vision really created the opportunity in the first place. So it, it was really fortuitous, but I tell so many young people who are looking to make an impact on the world, the very first thing that I've found in my career to be true of being able to do that starts with you really knowing your shit, <laughs> like, to put it mildly. You know, uh, there's a lot of noise. And I think that when you become reputed for someone who, you know, I'm not good at that much. I I'm, I'm just do this one thing. <laughs> you know, I sp I'm a specialist. Yeah. And I think trying to do what you choose to do in the world as to the best of your ability is just a, a pursuit that served me really well. Wonderful. And so it was a Let's Move campaign. What was your top takeaway or did you have a highlight from that experience? Yeah, I mean, so many highlights, gosh. But one of the top takeaways that I find still sits with me on a day-to-day -day basis or that I still draw from is how my assumptions were completely reversed about why people eat and drink the way that we do in America. You know, I used to hear all the time, oh, if people just knew better, they would eat healthfully. And I, we learned that that's actually not the case, that everyone pretty much knows that you should eat your vegetables, that that is a phrase that's rung true for thousands of years for humans. We're not the first to say it. <laughs> and my grandmother wasn't even the first to say it <laughs> as much as I think and in my head as a kid, she was. We know what's good for us. And there are so many different life situations and environmental informants that by persuasion or by necessity or by want and desire have us choosing differently. And, and I think yeah. that what I learned was just an incredible open-mindedness to every American's walk of life, where they come from, how different we all are, how there are some values that unite all of us and how people have aspirations and they want to feel good about getting closer to those aspirations. And so one of the things that I love about the work that we did was really the inspiring message, you know, not the traditional government, oh, you need to eat this or not that or like stop drinking soda or stop eating candy, you know, none of the messaging that really pulls people down. It was really about lifting people up and and meeting anyone 
where they're at and inviting them to think just a little bit more about what they wanted for themselves from a health perspective. And I I think there was no one better in the world than Mrs. Obama to represent that message in that moment. But that's, that's something Mason that lives with me every single day. And when I'm thinking about brands and when I'm thinking about product market fit with new ventures, you know, how they talk to their customer is so deeply important to me because that learning is imprinted on my mind, like how it really resonated with people, how authentic it was, how true and meaningful it is to really lift people up as they're thinking about their health as opposed to tear people down and and Mm -hmm. tell them what they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, um, less so, yeah. less of the scare tactics and more of the hope tactics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which right? is exactly like, it's our goal with mostly green here, and what we see as a problem with some of the sustainability and environmental messaging out there is that there's a lot of there's a lot of scare tactics out there, and there's some campaigns that I think are are not doing good for the American public. One thing in particular that you mentioned, it's almost a contradiction that we all know what we need to do to eat healthy. And yet you're saying nutrition is a taboo topic. Can you talk about that tension there a little bit? Sure. Nutrition and food are such are two different things, right? Mm. To start off with. Many of us think about food in a highly functional way. We think about it as a source of nutrition. We think about what it can do for us nutritionally. We have an optimizer's mindset. We want to live longer. We want to look better. We want to feel better. We want to be more active. We want to perform better physically. But food is so much more than that, right? And so when we start to acknowledge that food is cultural and in certain cultural environments or settings, we're going to eat a certain way or it's familial and relational. And when we're in relationships or when we're in in social settings, that's going to cue different food behaviors. Food is emotional. Humans have gone to food for comfort for forever. And many of us, uh, you know, do today. And I think that it opens up a better and more holistic conversation around the role that food plays in our lives beyond functionality. And so, you know, the tension, I think, gets to the heart of how we relate to not just food, but the dynamics in which we experience Mm -hmm. food. And and I think that's the conversation that was so taboo. It's super easy to talk about which starches have complex carbs and which proteins have certain amino acids. Like everyone throws out that info like it's nothing, but it's just factoids. But when you think about, well, why is it that you feel the need to eat more protein every day? Touching back to your relationship with your body, your relationship with your culture and the aesthetic you feel you need to portray to the world. Like that's actually the taboo. That's the heart of the issue. Why is it that when we go home for the holidays that I eat more than I usually do. It's because my parents stress me out, right? (laughs) So, Yeah, really excited about Christmas this week. But that aside, you know, that's the stuff that none of us really want to talk about. I think maybe as a dietitian, you get trained in a lot of the, the psychology around eating. But the awareness that I have that I think that I wish we could just have a more open dialogue about and a healthier dialogue from a mental health perspective is that how we're eating really isn't always about food and the the functionality of it. It's actually much more about the socio-emotional dynamics of our mental health and well-being. That is so true that it can be very cultural or depending upon the time of the year, things change and life happens. And so sometimes people find it hard to eat healthy or the way that they would hope to eat 
all of the time. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes it's not so much about, sometimes health isn't the most important outcome of why you choose, make certain food selections. Mm-hmm. Sometimes relationship is more important. Sometimes fun is more important. Sometimes delight and happiness and that hedonistic instantaneous pleasure can be more important. And there's places in our lives for food to take on each of those roles. And I think that people are well served to give themselves permission to make those choices in a concerted way. You know, that the more awareness and mindfulness that we have as we eat, the more you can own those decisions. And like, yeah, I eat, you know, mostly, for example, like I rarely eat a cheeseburger and fries, but there's this one spot in my hometown that's on the way out of town. And and every time I pass by it, when I go back home, again, small town, Texas girl, I, I, I stop or, or I let myself stop because it reminds me of when I left home for the very first time. And I knew you were so on point, Mason, like leaving a small town is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, no one in my mom's family went to college. I was the first one to like leave little my little town to go to the big bad city of Austin to go to UT. And so I remember I stopped at this little burger shop in the town that I grew up in on my way out of town, like on my first drive out of Rosenberg ever to get to Austin to do this drive alone by myself. And it was just like comforting and it was a little sense of home. And you know what? It is totally okay that that burger joint serves that purpose in my life Mm -hmm. and that every so often I get a burger there, you know? So I guess what I'm suggesting is like that, that however food serves us, it doesn't have to be hyperfunctional. It can actually, we can eat different foods for lots of different reasons and that that's actually completely okay. Yeah, and, and to geek out on that <coughs> complexity just for one second more, I'd heard, which I don't know if this has held true, but 10 or 15 years ago, I heard that there were as many neurons in our gut as there are in the brain. And when I first, the person who told me that, I asked why on earth was that? Their answer was that, well, it turns out digesting food is a really difficult task and so that our gut needs all these neurons in order to digest it. But I wonder if you came across that one and two, if this connection that you're talking about may actually be a deeper connection between our gut and our emotional center. Uh, It's not disconnected for sure. And you were well advised. Digestion is a heavy load on the body. And it's also like our first barrier of defense from an immunity perspective. And so 80% of our immune system actually lands inside the gut. There is, you know, these bodies of research, unfortunately, don't talk to each other too much. But (laughs) it is well understood that how the body responds emotionally to physical threats. And they're deeply connected. You know, you can't you know, the the idea that you have anxiety or stress, the result of that is your body going into an alert state and suppressing digestion because it takes so much energy and therefore your body creating a way for all of that energy to be redirected to that alertness. And so the the emotional connection to the immune system, to what we eat and the load we put on the body, it's intimately intertwined. And we're building the same point, Mason, exactly that is that our emotions are connected to what we eat and what we eat is connected to our emotions. And I think that acknowledging that and like just letting ourselves just 
live in a way that creates, you know, permissiveness and freedom and intention around that could reduce a lot of stress <laughs> related to food, at least. Eating healthy doesn't have to be a practice in suffering. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally, totally. You talked about Michelle Obama being the right person at the right time to carry a particular message of that. Is the Better For You food movement, is it a recent thing in your mind or has it really just taken off lately? So we measured this acutely when I was in the White House, trying to understand how Americans think about food and how that's changing changed over time. And I've kept tabs on this since. And I would say it's it's a growing, but it is a recent phenomenon. We really saw changes in that attitudinal shift happen when during the Let's Move campaign. Americans are thinking differently about what they put in their body. And that started... I guess now 10, 12 years ago in a significant way from a data perspective. But it was kind of moving earlier before that. I think we started to see inklings of it when Whole Foods came on line mm-hmm. and people started waking up to the idea or were introduced to the idea that there were differences in produce quality between organics and non-organics and that maybe the way we were growing our food needed to be questioned Obviously, there were huge trailblazers that that wrote about this prolifically. Michael Pollan came on the scene and really woke up a lot of folks. There were food documentaries galore, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that when Mrs. Obama put a relatable face who was a working mom, highly educated, but still like passionate mother of two kids, you know, in America, that narrative was new. And it gave a voice to to many parents, I think, who were trying to raise kids in a healthy way, despite an environment that wasn't conducive to that. And I think it started what we're now seeing, which is a household reckoning, where not just products that you put in your body, but on your body, that your kids touch, that you handle day to day, from the air that you breathe in your home to the furniture that you sit on. Where has it been? What's it? What has it touched? How has it wreaked havoc on the planet? You know that we're asking all these questions that I really do think started with the the food and beverage better for you movement. You know where more and more people we know now would report themselves as uh, nutrition label literate. More grocery shoppers are flipping to the back label on packaged foods. More grocery shoppers are conversant in nutrients. And there's still a ton of confusion out there. But the self-education of the average American consumer has skyrocketed. And that's been a phenomenon that we've seen in the last decade. And the highly impassioned group within that has also started to push the edge around expectations of other products that we use across the whole 360 lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It certainly goes beyond food in our household, for sure, but across many other households. You know, it's not just what you're putting in your body, but it's what's going on your body or what you're touching and what you're sitting on and what clothes you're putting on, too. So earlier you talked about this idea that eating whole foods and not necessarily the company. Lowercase um, W <laughs> is what Walter would say. Yes, uh, that it's good for human health, but also good for the planet. So that the concept of uh, nature packaging food in a nutritious way for us. Do you agree with this? And if so, when did you come to that understanding? 
You know, my relationship with food started with my mother. She's Mexican, I think I mentioned, and her ethos around communicating that she loved us was primarily through cooking. And she's a phenomenal cook. And every every member of her family is a phenomenal cook. It's like a rite <laughs> of passage. And so I'd always thought of food as just a medium by which my family came together. I didn't think about it from a critical perspective. I didn't know I needed to. I just assumed that in the way my mom took care of me through feeding me, that any other venue was also serving me food through that lens, whether it was my cafeteria or if it was a restaurant. I just never questioned the portions that showed up or the ingredients that were in them. You know, My only experience eating was being fed by the most loving, nurturing woman on the planet, right? So my first kind of big experience was when I was graduating high school and I had been a lifelong athlete and then I got a recurring injury and I was benched on and off the bench for a couple seasons, but I was still eating like an athlete and I'd never thought about food and weight and my appearance until my high school graduation party and my mom, true to form, had like this, she had this photo collection of me at every year of since I was in kindergarten. Such a mom thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And also like horrifying as an 18 year old graduating. <laughs> yeah, senior. some are cute and some you're like, oh, that was a bad year. You're like, this is not the venue for this mom. Like, why is this at my graduation party? And I saw how I'd gained weight. I'd gained a lot of weight. And I was experiencing the the result of that. I had acid reflux. I a few months later, or maybe a month later, I was getting my my pre-college physical that you have to get for admissions. I had I had pre-diabetes markers. Oh I mean, it was gosh. a really shocking moment. And I don't remember how I accessed such solid information, but I remember reading that the way to healthfully lose weight, and I was really concerned because I didn't want to get an eating disorder or start really messing with my head. Mm -hmm. I'd seen a lot of friends go through really hard situations, and I was scared to even tinker with losing weight because it seemed so challenging and mysterious and hard to do without really screwing up your head. And I was like, I, how do I do this in a way that I stay mentally fit? and stay confident and appreciate my body still. I think I met with like a, a dietitian at UT and she was like, and she showed me the literature on the best methods for long-term weight loss. And it turns out it's one method that is very evidence-based is keeping a food journal. And this was so amazing to me because it was free. <laughs> and as a college kid, I was like, yes. So I, I did three things my entire freshman year of college that changed my life. First, I slept for nine hours a night. I wasn't drinking coffee. I wasn't drinking alcohol. I had a very lame freshman year at UT. And, you know, <laughs> I like, hardly made any friends because I slept. I slept every night. I walked every day. And that walking over the first few weeks would involve some time limit of running incorporated. So I would run for five minutes for a couple of weeks, and then I turned that into 10 minutes. And then however many months later, I was running for 45 minutes straight. And then I would just get faster and faster. And within that first year, I ran my first 5K at a faster time than I was running my sprints in high school soccer. Okay. And then the third thing I did was keep this food journal and the food journal was amazing because I would just log what I ate and then I would learn what was in that food. And then I would also journal how I felt. 
And it just became really clear in just a number of weeks at how the days that I didn't skip meals and that I ate full meals, you know, that had all three macronutrients, that had a lot of plants, that were mostly vegetables, those days I not only felt great, but I felt fuller, like more satiated. And I just started realizing, wow, there are so many foods that are just in my environment sort of being thrown at me that are terrible for me, that I just took for granted as a kid that, you know, were easy to eat. And I I just couldn't believe it. I felt like the wool was finally taken over my eyes, like, or what the opposite of that is. Like, I was, I was enlightened. Uh, and Push the wool I was, off your eyes? I don't know. Yeah, 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 off. That's the right word. <laughs> I was blown away, you guys. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, you're telling me that I could have three Oreos for the same sort of, like, caloric trade-off as I could have an apple and peanut butter? And obviously, the latter is so much more filling and and makes you feel so much better. And I didn't have, and I know people really talking about calories is like a very, is now sort of a taboo thing to do. But like just from a straight scientific perspective, when you're looking at the trade-offs between two food choices, the one that has the best nutrient density, so the lowest calories for the highest number of micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals, Obviously, that's the one you want to choose if you're trying to lose weight and really um, take a healthful, long-term approach to to incorporating nutrient-dense foods into your regular lifestyle. And that's what I learned how to do with this food journal. And it was extraordinary. And a very different I, I just, freshman year experience. I mean, that is a the, the most conscious approach. I, I mean, I didn't really start learning about the connection between food and my body until I had a parasite when I was living in Spain and it destroyed my GI system. And all of a sudden I couldn't even, I couldn't digest potatoes anymore. Uh And so I had got a crash course in it. And I think it's pretty amazing that you just decided to do it that way. (laughs) And that you decided to go to a dietitian at UT to figure out the best and the healthiest way to do so. I mean, in high school, I had struggled with bulimia and I had never considered how do I want to change my weight? Or I want to change my weight, but how do I do it in the healthiest way, in the best way? So for you to have the wherewithal to figure it out the right way and the healthy way, and you know, people struggle with being able to do that. So kudos to you for sure. Cut from a different well, cloth. You know, it's a it's so nice of you to say, and it's a little bit of a commentary on our society, right? I mean, True. we don't equip everyday people with basic nutrition education, right? I have a three-year-old, an an almost three-year-old. Eli already knows that if he gets a boo-boo, that there are such people that are called doctors that will give him a thing called medicine that will help him heal his (laughs) boo-boo. And and like, that's extraordinary, right? Like, Like, think about how bolstered the medical community is by the simple everyday education we give our kids around how to heal and how to handle medicine. And the idea that both of you, who I consider to be incredibly intelligent, well-educated, high-achieving, successful individuals could go through life without knowing that there's, one, a, a professional resource for you that's available to answer these questions and to help you, and two, what the the basics are around what constitutes healthy eating. I mean, can you imagine how communities across the country are just devastated by a lack of that education? So, I mean, you hit the nail on the head and I I feel so lucky. I don't remember how I 
the impetus that I had. But I, I do remember feeling very, very angry after I had that experience. I remember going back home and I didn't have a mirror in my dorm room, which was really helpful. I was not focused at all on how I looked and it was incredible. And I went home that summer. I did have a mirror in my bedroom. I was like shocked at how different I looked. And I remember just being so angry because my family was like, you know, Hispanic American statistic. We have diabetes, we have gallstones, we have cancers, we have obesity, we have heart disease, like all of it. I was like, why is this only available to a kid who broke out of Rosenberg, Texas to get a college degree at UT? Like, this is so unfair. And I really think that that's that anger is what spurred me to work so hard in nutrition. Cause like, this is ridiculous. Like I cannot, I can't believe we're the most, like we have the highest GDP in the world as a country and we can't afford to educate our population about such a basic elemental life skill. It's a travesty. It's really sad. Information is power. And so giving people the tools that they need to eat healthy, that sounds like a, a very big passion point of yours. It is. If, if I could make money doing this, I would, but I have to support a family. So <laughs> one day, no, I, I, this is one of the themes I worked on really up until I, I, my most recent role was on novel methods and technologies in nutrition education. And marketing is one of those ways of doing it. You know, it's arguable that today's nutrition informed brands are doing more to educate the American consumer than public schools are. So I've worked with public schools on nutrition education. I've worked with the tech industry on health and nutrition education. And frankly, without nutrition as part of the public education system in every school in every state, I, I think I've come around to this thesis that a really great brand's ability to tell a story is actually the fastest way to get to real impact. I think that's a really interesting segue to some other questions about merchandising and CPG brands in the store. And you spent some time studying the science behind these techniques that can play a role in our purchasing decisions. Can you share some of what these are and you know how we can game the system? Yeah, well, I love CCs. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know, it starts with a great product in my experience, you can only say so much about a product that only has so many interesting things about it to say, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. I see a lot of companies that are actually marketing and not companies that are actually product. The story, it, it's like people, you know, brands are like people. We love relating in an authentic way to other people. We derive so much pleasure from that as humans you know, when you meet someone that you want to get to know, they're kind of like onions. You know, you just peel back layer after layer. And with great products, the more you find out about them, the more you like them, the more you might fall in love with them. And I feel that that actually the heart of that infatuation and that what it, what turns into, well, you know, long-term customer loyalty starts with how good the product is. So for me, like merchandising and store presence, it's really important to get right. Most of that's going to come back to your packaging. And your packaging can only say so much and only be so beautiful, depending on how awesome and beautiful the product is. So merchandising, 
packaging, marketing, it only lasts so long. And then customers, you have, you know, the customer is going to get to know you. They're going to try you. They're going to read about you. They're going to read the side label, the back label. They're going to look at your reviews. They're going to talk to other people who use you. And they'll leave if they don't like what they find out. What about yeah, kind of so, the on shelf and like eye level for kids versus adults? And they're a crazy that industry knows about, but people don't know about. And so, oh, the nag effect. Yeah, specifically, you have this amazing video, The Power of Conscious Eating. And so, there are some really fascinating topics that you touched on. And one was about merchandising and the science behind some of the maneuvers that retailers or large CPT companies. And- yeah, I think in that video, I talk about the nag effect, which is desirable outcome of products placement on shelf to make a kid nag if the kids shopping with mom. So you've got a product at the kid's eye level, which mom doesn't automatically see at her eye level. And as that kid who's walking with her sees it and starts asking for it, he starts nagging her for this product that's just perfectly placed at a child's height, right? So I think that that's a good example of the environmental inputs that we're not even aware of that sort of sabotage our well-intended grocery visit. And that happens everywhere. I think I mean, any one of us could have come up with that idea if we were being paid a lot of money to figure <laughs> out how to sell products to kids, right? Like yeah. we would, you but would do, do it if you're incentive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> right. There I is that question. I guess they convince themselves that, that sugar I'll bet they have really comfortable plush beds. <laughs> they sleep really well. <laughs> so how do we beat that? Is there a tactic going into the store or do we just change where we shop and where we take the kids? You know, it's a yes and at a micro level, you change where you shop and where you take the kids. Those acute decisions, you just make them differently and you decide what is going to make that experience easiest for you as a parent to get the outcome that you want for your children. My kids think that (laughs) the grocery store is actually a dog food store because almost everything in the grocery store is dog food, (laughs) 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 which is what I call anything that is something I don't want them to eat. (laughs) That is amazing. I'm going to start using that. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible, especially, you know, and most of it's brown too. So it's like, it works out really well. (laughs) That is so funny. (laughs) You know, just something for when they're older, not right now. But I think at a metal level, your um, implications, right, Mason, like we're, capitalist society, we actually vote with our dollars. And if we want that environment to change, there has to be some willingness to spend for higher quality, for values-informed products that resonate with the the world that you want to be living in. Um, yeah, we pay for cheap food with healthcare. My passion started with sustainability and my first company was actually a landscaping company. But as I dug into sustainability, I realized that I thought food was the most important thing we can do for sustainability and for the planet. It consumes it's like 80% of the potable water in the US and uses 50% of the energy that we do. So I want to get your take on food and sustainability and how you think about the connection between the two. Well, you were ahead of your time, Mason, because the World Economic Forum just launched its report, you know, the year before last about the food industry and and food consumption's impact on the planet. But it's something that people have been talking about for 
quite a long time that I don't think has gotten due attention. It's actually, I think, much more, speaking of fear-based information, like it's scarier Mm. to think about how our food production impacts the planet than it is to think about how it impacts our health because the planet's issues are so urgent and pressing. I get excited. I guess I think hyper-rationally about this, right? I'm like, okay, if we want this to change, let's back out, you know, kind of back into that outcome. More people need to know about it. How do we get more people to know about it? You know, more thought leaders need to be educated and talking about this. How do we get more thought leaders doing that? Well, we need to publish more information that's valid, that's easy to cite, that's easy to communicate. How do we do that? Well, we need to get more of our think tanks, our researchers getting the right economic and, and macroeconomic cases built for the the fact base. And so I, I kind of think about it in that way, like how does information move? And, and so that's what I'm really excited about right now is that information on this topic is moving faster than I've ever seen it move and it's getting traction and and I think that that's kind of the first hint that there's going to be something that we have to do about it right if the mostly green crew is in the store sometimes when we're talking about packaging with a recycling expert there came these kind of struggles of do you buy the organic product with a ton of packaging or do you look for a whole food lowercase w a product because of packaging issues in the store. What do you think are the important drivers and indicators of go forward quality that we need to be looking at? Oh, it's so hard, Mason. (laughs) I guess that was a big question. (laughs) I mean, you know better than I do, but one thing I've heard from entrepreneurs like you is that the supply chain isn't ready for it. There's bottlenecks at the co-manufacturing and at the packaging level that is really preventing us from getting sustainable materials around organic products so that there is this horrible tension downstream presented to the end user. I think if they were side by side and priced the same, everyone would choose the sustainable packaging, Mm -hmm. but they're not. It's more expensive to be sustainable right now. And so I actually am starting to think about what are supply chain technologies that are emerging that could help us change that cost that ends up being swallowed by the customer. I think what you guys did with CCs in create in thinking about shelf life extension as a potential dimension of the overall solution to consuming produce was extraordinary. And I, I love, I think there's a lot to do there. What I want is everyone who's excited about food to get more excited about the food supply chain, you know, and, <laughs> and try to get more capital into the manufacturing tier of our industry so that there's more competition there for more sustainable goods. I mean, you as an entrepreneur with a consumer facing brand would definitely pick the more sustainable packaging if it were competitively priced and didn't put your margins in a situation that you couldn't, you know, really defend them to your investors. And so when I think about the brand's conundrum of how to make selections around packaging, that's who kind of I'm really empathizing with. It's like, oh God, they want to do better. Everyone wants to do better. But um, none of our retailers would help us pay for the sustainable packaging. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. anytime so we it's... had a new product innovation, I think, you know, recently we've been trying, or we were trying at CC's to transition to sustainable packaging. We found a great supplier, we found a great product, everything. And it was like, well, the cost is here. What's the retailer going to say? The retailer is going to say, hell no. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And so that's- Because they're not where... getting the signals from the consumers. 
Right. Well, th- the consumers don't really get the opportunity to vote yet, right? They've sure. they've put a lid on it. There are going to be ways in which retailers are threatened in the future and will have to respond. I'm confident about that with the growth of e-com because as, you know, as as everything's being shipped, Investors are very much accepting of the costs of shipping as part of the overall COGS structure nowadays. And so what's happening is that the consumer who then intimately interacts with the packaging materials through the shipping experience and unboxing experience is like looking for the sustainable packaging solution and will not Many consumers we're seeing in the data don't convert to repeat customers because they don't like how your product was packaged and they just don't want to handle it and they feel guilty about it and they just don't want it. So I think we're going to start to see it there. And as we get economies of scale, then maybe it won't be so price competitive to the retailers or the retailers look at e-com and they're like, oh my God, we're losing this category's market share to our, to e-com retail competitors. And hopefully they dig in and start to see that packaging could be one competitive aspect of keeping consumers on site in store. Jessica's been very aware of that and even reaching out if she has a brand that she loves, but she doesn't like the packaging, she'll actually send them a note and tell them. Yeah, you know, we get great, That's awesome. Yeah, we get great brands and products that are delivered to us that have all sustainable packaging. So I have this stack on my desk that I keep. So when a brand comes across or is delivered that doesn't have sustainable packaging, I have a list of alternatives that I can share and send them um, because it's pretty you're like no I I have I like that you that that's right Jessica it's like I have uh, some criticism for you and I also have the solution for you so let's just yeah let's solve this problem in one shot I love your product I hate the packaging (laughs) right (laughs) now you need some like bamboo rayon t-shirts to say that (laughs) right yes any other really exciting trends or important trends that you're seeing in the market right now? So many. I am loving watching the mom entrepreneur trend where, you know, you've got women who are super compelling and have like, I mean, it's, I, I'm like, God, this is incredible. Moms who have different expectations of how they're going to be served by the marketplace and who are going after next generation products to support parenthood. I think this is a very exciting space to see a, you know, a population that hasn't really had a voice in the marketplace who's only bought baby products designed by men (laughs) historically, no offense, Mason, and (laughs) who are reinventing everything, you know, baby food to high chairs to accessories for kids to toys to educational and entertainment categories. I mean, we're seeing it across the board, but like this next generation of kids raised by these extraordinary parents who are now starting companies. I mean, it's going to really, I think, change the, the American childhood experience. And that always just, you know, that tugs at my heart, obviously, but more importantly, there's a marketplace for it. Mm-hmm. I think the other trend I'm really excited about is Latinx brands um, going national and really having strong presence domestically, communicating a next generation 
version of maybe traditionally sidelined, especially Mexican-American brands and, and foods and beverages that maybe we've taken for granted, but that actually have more complexity and, and multidimensionality than we've appreciated before. So I'm really loving here in Austin. I really love Lalo tequila is something I'm excited about. That's our favorite. Obviously, we love that too. We have trouble. <laughs> A bottle doesn't last for long enough in our household. <laughs> Yeah, there's some really, I think, special activity happening in that space. Maybe broadly speaking, there's been underserved markets that now with the onset of e-commerce changes to alcohol and spirits regulations, and I think better product marketing are now going to get to to those markets in a way that traditional retail hadn't really allowed historically. So I get really excited about that. I'm certainly going to give myself permission to have that extra cookie more often. I'll tell you that. <laughs> is having an extra glass of wine in the same vein? Absolutely. It is? <laughs> well, food-wise, I'd say I would take an extra serving of my dad's famous beans and rice. That's mm, my comfort food. That sure. is delicious, too. I feel like I've learned it before and know about the connection between food and emotion, but she just puts it so articulately. I think I really understand it now. Yeah, in this episode, it was a bit less conversational than typical, but that's because she's just so packed with amazing insights, you know? We just wanted her to let loose. Absolutely. I was just engaged listening the whole time. <laughs> we didn't even get to half the things we wanted to talk to her about, but that was incredibly educational. Maybe we'll have her back on. Yeah. One quick fact check. Mason, you said that food consumes 50% of the energy in this country, and that's not quite accurate. It's more like 20 to 25%. <laughs> Yeah, I misspoke there. I got that one wrong. But food is the number two consumer of energy behind us driving our cars around. So it does have a huge impact on energy and water, which are two very critical components to sustainability. Any uh, takeaways you got, Jess? I loved that her team, while at the White House, practiced and preached the concept of lifting people up while they're thinking about their health versus tearing them down by saying, like, don't eat that candy bar or don't drink that soda. Because mm -hmm. like how you mentioned, you know, that's what we're trying to do here at Mostly Green is lift people up instead of scaring them with, you know, bleak or gloomy messaging around the state of the planet. We want to have a positive message and impact around goals and how our individual actions all matter. And it's such a great kickoff to our clean eating focus that we'll be doing for the coming weeks is really focusing on the positive and clean eating is part of better health. And we just want to make healthy choices when we can. And when we're hungover, we're going to eat those, uh, that greasy Mexican food. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's time for the weekly giveaway. For the Mostly Green crew, this week we're giving away a set of two ceramic nonstick cookware from Green Life. To get that healthy cooking going. Mm -hmm. And this week's winner is Charlie Lehman. Woohoo! We didn't do a drum roll, but... That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> get in touch with us, Charlie, and get your new nonstick cookware. We love ours. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast to get updates for when new episodes launch, which is every Wednesday, by the way except last Wednesday because of COVID. If you haven't yet rated or left a review, those help so much as well. So if you're enjoying our content, please do that. And stay tuned for more clean eating podcasts coming up this month.